Well, look, Dad, your friend is building it. My friends, we were downtown driving around the new soccer stadium that is being built right here in St. Louis, Missouri, when my son Patrick yelled that out from the back seat of the car. Look, Dad, your friends are building it. He was referring to my friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies is proud to be a part of the team that is bringing Major League Soccer to America's first soccer capital right here in St. Louis, Missouri. As construction partners of the St. Louis City Stadium, they are looking forward for this project to be a place for entertainment, camaraderie, and passion for generations to come. You can learn more about that project and look what else they're building, Dad, by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire, He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. I'm going to begin this episode with a guest that you are going to fall in love with by the end of it, I promise you that, by sharing with you first one of the most instrumental books in guiding me forward as a leader, but also as a human being. Stephen Covey wrote a book a couple decades ago called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Many of you have read it. The fifth habit, it's one that I love, it's called Seek First to Understand and then to be understood. That, I think in life, seems so obvious. But then again, my friends, so often in life what seems so obvious are also the things that we miss, the things that are right in front of us, the things that if we observed and if we acted upon would radically change both our lives and the lives of those we encounter. So during a season of profoundly tragic conflict, conflict in the Ukraine, Divisiveness here locally, challenges with all nations and between all peoples, conflicts in our neighborhoods, in our homes, and in our lives. This idea, here it again, of striving first to understand where someone else is coming from. And then ultimately, completely understanding that it's paramount in you and I and us taking the next right step forward together. So our guest today is going to help us do exactly this in our lives. Her name is Celeste Headley. You may have heard her on NPR where she's hosted shows like Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, and All Things Considered. She has been on PBS and BBC, among many, many, many outlets. With over 25 years of on-air radio experience, Celeste has a unique perspective on what truly makes a wonderful, effective, beautiful conversation. Today, Celeste is going to join us to provide a little illumination on the path going forward so that you and I can have conversations, even difficult ones, that actually matter. During this time when there seems to be an abundance of fighting with or talking at, rather than speaking with or coming together, today's conversation with Celeste will be captivating. It's going to be engaging. It's certainly going to be worthwhile. So here's my encouragement for you right now, my friends. Turn off the distractions, grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, turn up the radio dial just a little bit more, get ready to take notes on a topic that is so important, not only for our world, but for your world. 
So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our newest friend. Her name is Celeste Hadley. Celeste, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> we have an honor of having you on our show today. And my listeners heard a long, roaring introduction before I brought you on. How do you normally introduce yourself when it's out in public? Generally, I tell people, uh, you may have heard my voice on NPR, and I have a viral TED Talk. Because sometimes, I, a lot of times, I'll get that look where they're kind of looking at me, trying to place me. And I try to relax people immediately. Like, I'm not some friend that you've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> you, you may know me from these other places. So the viral TED Talk, uh, 21 million downloads, I believe, when you add them all up right now, the NPR work. And yet what we all know is this work doesn't form in a vacuum. It, it, it took time and evolution and experience and trips and falls to get to where you are today. Would, would you mind backing away from DC and away from radio and away from NPR and PBS and the books, all the way back to your childhood for a moment. T talk about what growing up was like for you. I grew up in a household of extraordinarily accomplished people. It's something I hinted at during my TED talk. I mean, my grandfather is the Dean of uh, Black American Composers. His living room had a trophy case where he had uh, keys to cities <laughs> and he had nine honorary doctorates. Uh, my grandmother was an extraordinarily accomplished journalist, writer, and um, concert pianist. Uh, my father was the first man to pilot a mini submarine. Uh, my great grandmother, her life history has been read into the congressional record. This is all just to say that I, you know, I'm not the most impressive person in my family. <laughs> so I, I, I guess some people might find that upsetting. I found it really freeing. I, I find that when you don't feel competitive, you know, it kind of frees you up to be whatever you're going to be, right? I don't have to, I, I don't have to rush to try to prove I'm the smartest and most talented person in my family. That's not happening. So um, let me do what I feel like doing. Um, so, you know, I grew up surrounded by music and surrounded mm -hmm. by books and, and also really resourceful people. My grandfather um, made a lot of the furniture in his home and the toys. He made his own crossword puzzles. We had we had a whole bunch of very resourceful people. Talk about William Grant Steele for a moment. It's a name that some of our listeners will know immediately and others may not, but I think they should. Yeah, I mean, I think that the best thing to do to get an introduction to him is to listen to his music. And then you will probably be wondering, wait, why don't we know more about this guy? <laughs> well, right. it's because he's black. I mean, the, his list of firsts for a black composer are, are very long. The first to conduct a major symphony, the first to have his work performed by a major symphony, major opera company, major everything. But, you know, being the first is is never easy. <laughs> it, that's never an, an easy life when yes. you're the one opening the doors. And so it was really hard for me. He was the person I loved most in the world. And he uh, was punished <laughs> for venturing into classical music as a black man. And that was that was difficult for me to watch. I mean, I still carry some of that uh, anger with me um, over uh, racism in this country. But either way, he's his music speaks for itself and it's it's beautiful. He was embracing melody. You know, when people hear 20th century composers, sometimes they get afraid. He was embracing melody at a time that the rest of the classical world was going towards atonalism. So his music is 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 luscious and beautiful and you will enjoy it believe me part of his music is the music of his not only work but of his life he and your grandmother were married in tijuana mexico 
They were. It was illegal to for she was a Jewish woman, Eastern European Jew. He was black, and so they had to get married in Mexico. And on the way back to the United States, he got a speeding ticket. My grandfather was quite a lead foot. And he he spent the his wedding night in jail while she rushed around trying to get bail money. <laughs> then on their, you know, he finally they finally got home and he spent the night writing music, which my grandmother always laughed about that. <laughs> no matter what, he was always writing music. So, um, yeah, he had to put a six foot fence around his house uh, to protect his children. You know, people at that point were not, to put it lightly, were not supportive of mixed race families. Um, he, they drove their kid, their two kids, to and from school. You know, they they were concerned, but they grew up. They they went and found a house right in the very first. Um, middle-class neighborhood for blacks in Los Angeles, which if you know LA is right near the corner of Pico and Crenshaw, it borders Koreatown. If nothing else, they were surrounded by, surrounded by a black neighborhood, which was supportive and welcoming. You, you mentioned a moment ago how accomplished all these family members were. And jokingly, you, you said it with a laugh, but you, you said, I will never be the smartest in my own family. <laughs> for many people, they would find that disruptive and challenging. Like, I'll never stack up to my grandfather. How could I? Or my grandmother? How in the world could I? I'll never make my own piece of furniture or my own beautiful piece of music. You instead found it to be almost liberating to go in, in your own direction. It just kind of relieves the pressure off you, right? Like the the one the family's, the one they're really going to point to and, and is <laughs> <laughs> not you, right? So you get to kind of like um, make your own world. I got a lot from my family. I mean, I'm smart. I don't have any, uh, false humility about whether I'm smart or not. I totally think I'm smart. I think I, uh, inherited a lot of talent and mostly curiosity from my family. I think, um, uh, my brilliant and accomplished family gave me a lot of things. Um, but one of the best things they gave me was being role models without putting pressure on exceeding their achievements. There was never any, well, we did this, why can't you also? It was, you know, that was never the expectation. So yeah, I find that liberating. Absolutely. Throughout childhood, you, you have music playing in the background and also you're creating it yourself. As you journeyed through school, what did you imagine yourself doing as you aged? Oh, I was going to be in uh, on Broadway for sure. That's when I was a young kid. I still have a lot an, really an obscene number of musicals that I could sing for you from beginning to end. <laughs> well, again, again, let me grab my coffee. Uh, start to finish. And then when I got into high school, what I really wanted to do was be a classical actor. I went to the Idawala School of Music and the Arts and I applied as a Shakespearean specialist. That's what I started school for. I was in the BFA program at USC. But then I got a full scholarship to Oberlin Conservatory they don't accept you mid mid year, right? You can only start in the fall. Mm. And I hated USC <laughs> so much, which was a huge disappointment to my family. My mother went there, my dad went there. There's a, there's a scholarship in my dad's name there. My grandfather got an honorary doc. They celebrate my grandfather's birthday at USC every year. Okay, so when I came home and was like, I hate this school. Um, nothing against USC, nothing against USC. I went to Northern Arizona University for, which was only supposed to be a semester um, because that's where my mother was living, was in Flagstaff at the time. They didn't have any theater scholarships left. And they said, the only scholarships we have are music, uh, but I don't think that's gonna work out for you. Like this is opera, like you have to sing opera. 
<laughs> and I was like, all right, you know, how much, how long do I have a week? Okay. <laughs> so the arrogance of ignorance. Um, and I spent a week learning like an aria and two art songs and I did my audition and I got the scholarship <laughs> and it was no turning back. Like when I began to sing opera, which I like every other child made fun of my entire life, right? We all watched the Bugs Bunny cartoons and opera seemed totally ridiculous. But when you actually sing that music or really uh, immerse yourself in that music, mm. You know, there's nothing that powerful that way. So um, there was no turning back. So I I got trained and I got ended up getting my master's degree at University of Michigan in voice. After University of Michigan, you graduate with voice, but I don't think I saw you perform on Broadway. So so where did you go next? <laughs> you know, life happens along the way. I was engaged to a soldier in the army. Um, I got pregnant. He got sent to Bosnia and then Kosovo, right before the baby was due. And I uh, went back to Arizona so I could get help with a newborn baby. And while I was there, this is right after I graduated when I should have been auditioning for opera programs. He ended up not coming home for years. He got injured, a lot of stuff happened. And so in the meantime, I needed a day job and I walked into a the public radio station there, which was KNAU, Arizona Public Radio, and the music director was a former classmate of mine and she said oh my god celeste do you want a job <laughs> and i said yep what is it <laughs> and so i got trained to do classical music hosting which is much more difficult to find people to do than you might expect and from there they started training me in how to report on cultural issues and interview mm -hmm. musicians for the air and then a month after i started getting trained as a reporter i got my first story on the national network on npr so it just happened to be something i was really good at before you stepped in shut your eyes and then step forward did you know you had a gift as a radio personality a media journalist did you know that at all for yourself no i was not interested in politics i was not interested in journalism at all i had no idea i was good at it but classical music hosting i could share my love of classical music with listeners and then it was so gradual right like what ended up happening was they didn't really have anybody who was qualified to do some of these cultural stories so at the time there's a very very famous and accomplished uh navajo flautist named uh, r carlos nakai beautiful beautiful musician and he became the first native musician to be nominated for two awards at the grammys and there was a big question about whether he would attend or not mm. it was this sort of controversial subject because he might boycott he was refusing to do any interviews about it and then finally he said i'll do one interview and i'll do it for my local public radio station and that was my first interview ever in my career <laughs> and my second interview was uh judy collins <laughs> who was coming through to do a concert in Flagstaff. So yeah, I just got thrown into the deep end of the pool. But for me, journalism was about not only sharing my passion, which is sort of where it started. It's like, look at this cool thing. Like, this is a really cool story. You may not realize it, but pause for just a moment. And the better you were at creating an mm. aural landscape, which I was very good at. I had a musician's ear. Like I was very good at creating stories which were interesting and varied and and engaging for the ear um, the better you were at doing that the more likely people were to listen and yeah. retain 
And the other way to think about it is that I was still communicating to people using the power of my voice. It essentially was not that far off from singing, mm. in my mind anyway. So in preparing for episodes like this, I, I read the books that the authors have written. I listen to the interviews they've been on. I listen to the interviews they've actually put on themselves. With you, it's difficult because you've written so much, you've been interviewed so much, and you've interviewed so many. Many people who are phenomenal interviewees, like you are right now, are lousy interviewers because, yes. gosh, they love the word I and me. And, oh, one more thing I want to share with you, John, and your audience, and it's all about you. That's the way great interviews sometimes feel. You are a great interview, but you also are a phenomenal, phenomenal, world-class interviewer. Thank you. Talk about that, because those two things don't usually play well together. That's very true. I have no idea why I'm good at inter being an interviewee, except that I have, you know, 25 years experience talking on the radio. And so I've had the opportunity to hear thousands upon thousands of both good interviews and bad interviews. So maybe that's why as an interviewer, you, um, by the way, you just made me really nervous, but go ahead and fit, finish your answer. <laughs> As an interviewer, it's something I've worked really hard on. I can't stand interviews where the the interviewer is not allowing, they, they bring on some brilliant person and they don't allow them to, to tell you what they're brilliant at. If you find out what someone loves or what they are experts in, you're always going to have a good conversation. You've shared in the past that every person that you bumped into is an expert in something. Yes. And I want to make sure that our audience right now recognizes we're not just talking about getting ready for the microphone at NPR or PBS. We're talking eventually, and we're, we might as well step toward it right now, about how to have remarkable conversations in every interaction throughout your day. Yeah. And one way to do that is to recognize the person in front of you is an expert in something. Every one of us. So speak to that for a moment. Yeah. You know, some of the best interviews I've ever done, people are always asking me about my favorite interview and it's almost never going to be somebody that they know. Mm. You know, we, and when I hosted a show called the takeaway, we had a, a guy who was a professional truck driver and he was an absolute expert in America. Mm. Like he crisscrossed America all the time. And so when you wanted to get a feel, for what people were talking about. He was great. He was constantly in diners and bars and chatting with people or, or kindergarten teachers, honestly, who have such a great uh, sense of not just their own children, but the, the different waves of children as they pass through these trends in what kids are worried about, what they're, they're good at, what they're hearing from their parents. So my favorite interviews are almost always just regular people and, and they surprise you with what they know. You know, I'll be sitting there waiting for the metro train and be talking to the person next to me. And it turns out they collect China dolls, right? Right. And it's some, you know, it's always like some macho, muscled, older dude. And you're like, seriously? But people surprise you with their passions and their loves and the things they care about. Yeah. Um, Russian, one, one young girl, I mean, she couldn't have been more than 19 years old. And she starts talking to me about Russian literature and the changes in, in Russian lit and the, and the Russian novel over the, over the years. Everyday people are experts in things. And you do yourself a disservice if you're not getting the benefit of that. If you're just 
you know, what happens is people will say something about some news headline and they'll find out the other person voted for Bernie or Trump or whatever. And they think, okay, I know everything I need to know about this person. Yeah. No, you don't. No, you do not. Like you, I, I travel quite a bit for work. I am offered the opportunity of renting cars and I do occasionally, but primarily I prefer being either in the front seat next to a person who I do not yet know or in the back seat. And for me, it's an opportunity like you to ask these questions, sit back and be in awe of someone else's experiences in life. Why, why do you think, because you write quite a bit about the power of small talk, which seems so insignificant and petty. Why is small talk so important? Um, small talk is so underrated. I mean, I'll, I'll, let me go from the neurological and physiological standpoint first that wave even the wave you get from your from somebody across the street your body responds to in a positive way um having a 60 second conversation with the barista while you're waiting for your coffee about the weather your body responds to in a positive way and this has been tested again and again and again that 30 second chat that 60 second chat is going to yeah. lift your mood it'll lower your heart rate lower your stress markers all of those things um so a small talk is is low cost, low risk, and yet it's going to have a real impact on your mood, your physiology, your health and well-being. That's number one. But also, um, you know, the number one thing that people report to sociologists and psychologists about why they avoid conversations with strangers, especially, um, is fear that they'll get into a conversation they can't get out of. <laughs> now, most people can't give you an example of a time when that's happened, but it's still that's what they're afraid of. Um, small talk, nobody's afraid of getting out of, out of a conversation about the Red Sox, right? Like nobody's afraid of that. Nobody's afraid of getting out of a conversation about the weather um, or how much they like their new car they just got. Mm. The things they're afraid of getting out of are things like, how dare you vote for Donald Trump? Or what do you mean school choice is racist? What kind of a person are you? That's the, the conversations they're afraid of. So if we want to have more conversations with people and we do, it is good for you, um, then small talk is super useful. It's really useful. So if that's true, yeah, then why is. when we order, do we immediately look down at our phone? Why, when we're waiting for the Metro, do we never look up and around at the individuals around us? Sometimes the child holding our hand. Why do we seem to choose to opt into being disconnected from our fellow human beings? You're asking a question I would love to know the answer to. Um, let me say, first of all, I don't actually know the answer to this. All I can do is guess. Um, this question of why conversation, which is so good for us on every level, cognitively, emotionally, neurologically, physiologically, good for you. Conversation is good for you in all but two cases. And that's when the conversation is either hostile or someone's giving you advice. We hate that. <laughs> Even if you've asked for the advice, by the way, you still <laughs> don't enjoy getting the answer. Okay, every other situation, the conversation is good for you. So why do we avoid it? I don't no, but there's this great study carried out by a friend of mine and her colleagues. Basically, they aimed to, to find the answer to this. They studied conversations between people who were strangers, people who just met, people who had who lived together for at least a year. 
and they found something interesting. They found that we know how to do this. It's not rocket science. Like human beings are so beautifully evolved mm. to converse and connect through the sound of their voice and their ears that they naturally uh, do what they need to do. They naturally uh, maintain eye contact often. They naturally gesture. They naturally nod their heads and say, uh-huh, and laugh and respond and take turns. What gets in the way is the self-consciousness of constantly wondering how the other person is perceiving you. So you tell a joke, the other person makes a face, and you spend 30 seconds wondering <laughs> if that face means they think you're dumb. Right. Um, right. Or, oh, God, they just made a face, their face moved. Do they think I'm racist, sexist, whatever? So we spend all that time, we're wrapped up in ourselves, wondering about what the other person is thinking about us yeah. and how we sound. And we don't pick up on all that natural, super healthy biofeedback that we're getting. And it turns out that people like you more than you think. And people enjoy speaking to you more than you realize. That's just universal. Mm. So I don't know if it answers the question to my mind. It, it doesn't fully answer the question, but I think it, it's like scratching the surface of what goes wrong. What a perfect lead in. So let's talk about what goes wrong. I, I, I believe if I get the backstory right on this, that you were preparing a story for a plane accident out of DC, de-icing, you know the story well. And the FAA, well, and I'll let you tell, tell the story. Talk about that story and what did what did the FAA learn from that event and what did you take away from it? So I was not covering the story of the plane crash. I was covering the story of changing airline regulations. And this was part of my, the research that came up. And it was the story of a plane yeah. that took off um, out of, of DC, as you said, and, and crashed almost immediately into a bridge. So um, the pilot was not experienced in flying in snow or ice. Mm -hmm. The plane had been de-iced, but then they waited for a really long time on the jetway and they should have gotten de-iced again. Before they take off, the, they have the recordings obviously from the black box and the co-pilot starts throwing up warning signs and saying, you know, this doesn't look like, right. And the pilot's like, it's fine, it's fine. And blah, 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 blah. And he's like, yeah, I, this kind of looks a little wrong to me. And he, he, a few times he's saying stuff to the pilot who says everything's fine and you know, a couple minutes later, uh, the pilot, the co-pilot says, uh, we're going down. And the pilot says, I know. And they all died. Now, they did a massive investigation of this. This, for, among people in the airline industry, this is a famous crash. And they came away saying, hey, we need to train co-pilots in how to speak more forcefully and how to get their message across. And I thought, no, we need to train pilots in how to listen. Yes. That's what I came away with. And for me, at, especially at the time, because this was early into my research and conversation, it flipped everything I thought about on its head. Because it's so often that we think that good talkers are good conversationalists. We think that if, if we're funny and we have cool stuff, stories to tell, and people like listening to us, we think we're good conversationalist, but to be a good conversationalist, you have to be as good at listening as you are at talking. And mm. there just are not a lot of good listeners in the world. There, there just aren't. Is that something that is naturally ingrained, the ability to listen well and reflect and everything else that great listeners do? 
and or is it something that is trained into us and that we work on and refine as we age through life? Um, I imagine maybe there's some people who through their life experience and upbringing are are naturally good listeners, but frankly, no, it's a skill. Mm -hmm. um, and there's good research to back this up as well. They did they did a, a lot of research on how to get kids to listen better. Um, some of this went on the best work and it went went on in New Zealand and Australia, and they discovered that you have to study it. Like you don't learn listening by osmosis during math class or or history or whatever. You have to literally go into a class and say, we're going to work on listening. <laughs> and here's what we're going to work on. And um, here's what we want you to think about. And then we'll come back next week and we're going to do it again. Um, you have to, it's a discipline. Mm. And not only that, but it takes effort. Like listening in a deep way actually burns a trace amount of glucose. glucose not enough to help you lose weight it's just <laughs> we know that it requires energy yes. you know we know that it takes focus and energy so i say this to people all the time because i give keynote speeches all over the world and i say listen you're not going to leave this ballroom or wherever we are as a great listener you can't just say i'm going to be a great listener from now on you're going to have to work at it just like going to the gym nobody goes to the gym and is like that was an awesome workout okay i'm done for the rest of my life i'm pumped up no it, you have to exercise the muscle and that's the same way that it is with listening around seven years ago our dear friends hillary clinton and donald trump were talking at each other and yelling and roaring and racing around the stage and it was it was this train wreck and around that same time, you gave a TED talk that went absolutely viral. Did you know, as you walked onto the stage with the topic that you would be sharing, that this was something that not only needed to be heard and said, but actually would resonate to the degree it did? Are you talking about 10 ways to have a better conversation? Exactly right. Yeah, Maybe. I did not. In fact, the opposite, um, if I had known, I, I thought it would be boring to other people. Um, it was very interesting to me. I didn't, you know, generally when you say, oh, I'm an expert in communication, people sort of roll their eyes or they glaze over. Um, those are the soft skills nobody wants to talk about, right? So I just was like, nobody's, look, this is important to me, so I'm gonna deliver this speech. That's basically what I thought. If I'd known it was gonna go viral, I would have done my hair and put on makeup. Um, I, I promise you. <laughs> uh, no, I had, I had no idea. I find it heartening though. I mean, I think it's, it means people are putting into a Google search, how do I have better conversations or anything about better conversations, which is can only be good, mm. I think. Talk about yeah. that. So you spoke from your heart, a topic that mattered deeply to you. You did not put the makeup on. You did not do the hair the way you, apparently you wish you had. Yeah. But we received it well and we shared it with our friends and we tried to model some of the ideas that you shared within that talk and within the book that came out of it. Why do you think, though, now looking back on it, that it it went as viral as it did? I mean, I'm a, I'm a good speaker. Um, it's something I have, you know, obviously a lot of experience in. So there's that. But I also just think that people have felt for quite some time that something's not right. I think, and especially the pandemic has really brought this to the fore, is I think people realize um that they're lonely and that they desire true human connection that mm. the connection that they get on social media is often toxic and upsetting um and i think people are are trying to figure out what's going wrong um just like i was that's what brought me to all the research that led to that speech mm. um 
And so I think that when someone says in really plain language, I remember one comment, this is back in the days when I still read comments, <laughs> oh, the halcyon days of youth. Um, but one comment where they said, wow, I, I didn't think she was actually gonna just give 10 tips. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Right. And I was like, you know, this, I just, the, I mean, if nothing else, the, the, the talk is just straightforward. It says, yeah. this is what you should do or what you should, shouldn't do. And here's why. And maybe that's refreshing to people. Um, I think also, I, and this is one thing I've learned from doing all my speeches. Um, I'm, I'm always as specific as I can possibly be. You know, there's yeah. a lot of, I imagine you do a ton of speeches as well. And so you've heard those professional speakers that I have who are like, seize the day, grab your moment, live your best life, don't go by halves or whatever it may be. And everyone feels all pumped up and then they get, they get out of the conference room and they're like, what does that mean? Yes. Like, how is it that I seize the day? I think if nothing else, I always give people specifics. Mm. I say, okay, do this <laughs> because here's the research that backs it up and whatever but on a on a really a broader sense i just think people realize that we are losing connection with one another we are seeing the hatred um and the partisanship we've lost connection with families we've cut off friendships we know that something's going wrong and i think people are trying to figure out how to make it better well as that poster said on the on the on the clip she gave us 10 tips but you reminded us repeatedly throughout, take one, take one. Yeah. So I won't have you go through all 10, but I will invite you to pick one for us right now at this point in where we are societally with things breaking down around us and greater walls being formed between us. What, what's the one tip from those 10 that you're like, gosh, John, if, if you made me choose one child from my 10 babies, <laughs> I would strongly encourage people to borrow this one. It would be say you don't know when you don't know. Wow recognize when you don't know and then say it and i say that because human homo sapiens our species relies on a, a packs we are a pack animal and that's the only way that we have survived homo sapiens um is not was it, it, we're not more physically capable than neanderthal was we don't have bigger brains they neanderthal was strong and resilient and agile they had a rudimentary form of dentistry right the thing that 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 helped Homo sapiens to rise and survive and thrive was the fact that uh, we were the most sophisticated communicators and collaborators on the planet, which meant if you were messing with one human being, you were messing with more. It also meant, you know, there's only two species that can that regularly take down a bison. I don't know if you've ever been next to an actual bison. That's an impressive animal. I mean, they can jump like six feet in the air. They can run 40 miles an hour or something like that. They are incredible. There's only two species that regularly take them down. They are wolves and humans. Mm. Because we can communicate with one another and find out who has the best aim with a spear, who's the best on the horse, who knows how to butcher a bison, who has geometric thinking and can peel one off from the, the herd. That, that means we have to rely on one another to be experts in a separate field. You're not gonna take down a bison if you're like, no, 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 that's not how you throw a spear. I know how to throw a spear because I read a couple articles of an article that was linked on Facebook, right? I mean, that's how we have survived. So I want everyone to understand that you don't know everything, that 
searching a topic on Google doesn't make you an expert in that field and let other people be experts at what they're experts in. So this is part of your research that I found actually totally fascinating. Those who know the most on a topic actually rate themselves as knowing less than they do. Yeah. And those who know almost nothing on a topic, nuclear war weapons, global warming, whatever the thing is, we rate ourselves as extraordinarily expert on it. We know what we're talking about because we read the blog post. So why is that? And then how do we redeem that? So yeah, this is um, known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, but it has been tested in many other areas. And I'll give you an example. This was years ago, uh, but they brought in a whole bunch of people and they would ask their opinions on things. Um, for example, they this was back when uh, Ukraine, the the Russia was trying to annex the Crimea. And um, they brought people in and they said, okay, what do you think we should do about Ukraine? And people, some people had very strong opinions. And then they said, okay, uh, point to Ukraine on the map. <laughs> and people's knowledge of European ge geography is horrible. But here's the thing, the worse their geography was, and the average was off by like 1800 miles, okay? The worse their geography was, the more likely they were to recommend a military intervention. Wow. Our um, insistence that we move more than we do is dangerous. It has real world effects. You break through it by forcing people to explain their thinking. So I'll give you an example from the same set of, of researchers. Um, they would ask people, how much do you know about a toilet, how a toilet works, for example? And everybody says, of course, I know how a toilet works. But then you say, OK, here's the diagram of the toilet. Explain all the pieces and what they do. And no, they don't know reverse osmosis and why the pipe is bent, et cetera, et cetera. They don't actually know how a toilet works. Um, and so then you ask them, how confident are you that you know how a toilet works? And they're not confident at all. But you know what? The same thing works for things like merit pay for teachers or healthcare. You say, okay, what's your opinion on healthcare? And they'll tell you what their opinion is. And then you say, okay, walk me through this. How does this work? If we implement your plan, then what happens? And then what? And then what? And then what? And when you force them to walk through that whole thing and then ask them again, how confident are you? Suddenly, suddenly, you get a crack in confirmation bias. Mm. But going back to conversation, that means instead of arguing with someone and saying you're wrong, which actually entrenches them in their confirmation bias, that's where you use your questions. Interesting. Where do you, you know, where's your, what's your source of information? Okay, so we make everyone get stuff from their employers. And then what? And then what? And then what? What experience do you have with this? Who in your family has a pre-existing condition? And as you force them to walk through all of these and not give them information and dump all your stat statistics and facts in their head, but demand it from them in a, in a friendly and civil and respectful way, suddenly you get a crack in confirmation bias, which before this time we have never been able to crack. So let's talk about cracking that for a moment. Uh, you know, we're beginning to run out of time a little bit, so we'll, we'll race into this question together. Your grandfather was a world-class black musician composer. Your grandmother was an Eastern European Jewish woman. You, my friends, have had some remarkable conversations with Ku Klux Klan members. Like there, there could not be in my mind's eye 
a greater divide between you and the person on the, on the other side of the microphone. How do you hold those things gently where you can actually sit with someone who has views that are completely counter to the ones you hold, but still at the same time have a conversation with that human being? I mean, I'll say to start that I, I, I didn't do this well <laughs> uh, when I was younger, I obviously have very strong feelings about my own family and racism. And look, I'm only a few generations removed from a slave plantation in Georgia. So I'm going to have strong feelings about things like the Confederate flag, etc. Um, and I didn't, I would get angry, I would, I would start yelling at someone, I would say, what kind of person are you, etc, etc. But I, you can't help but notice that that doesn't work. I mean, there's no way you can have these conversations over and over and over again. And I do because I'm light skinned. People don't realize what my background is. Um, and so I have a lot of these conversations. You can't help but realize that the the tactics of shaming someone, of dumping facts in their head, it doesn't work. Maybe it makes me feel better, I guess, in the short term, but it doesn't accomplish anything. Mm. Um, and also as a journalist, you have to have that conversation and you have to have it in a respectful and fair way. You have to be fair. You can have your opinions, but you have to be fair. Um, and so between my training in journalism and just my realization that I really would like to do something about racism and that what I was doing wasn't helping, I, I just kept trying out different ways, different methods um, and uh, now I'm quite good at it. Um, it. I'm still a work in progress. I still get mad and upset sometimes. <laughs> um, but now I know how to question people and dig into their thought processes and their backgrounds with true, honest curiosity, not the kind of Socratic um, questioning where I'm I'm only using my questions to to prove that I'm right and they're wrong, but true curiosity. Um, it just accomplishes more than you think it's I don't want to say it's magic, but it kind of feels like magic sometimes, you know, I one of the things I talk about in my most recent book speaking of race was one of my neighbors who's very conservative and he said something like oh I just it upsets me because you know. Black people just keep voting for Democrats because they don't understand politics blah 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 blah. And I said well you know how many um, black people are you really close friends with. And he thought about this for a second and he's like, well, I guess just you and and I we're not close friends <laughs> like I would I would I would never invite him to my birthday party. To be fair, he would never invite me to his. And, and if we did, neither one of us would attend like we're not close. And I thought I so I said to him, so do you think I don't understand politics? And he said, oh, no, of course, you you know, I hear you on the radio all the time. Obviously, you know, you're probably smarter than I am is what he said. And I said, so you know one black person and, and I know more about politics than you. So I, I'm confused. <laughs> Why do you think black people don't, do you think I'm, I'm not voting, you know, based on what I know? And he's like, no, no, I just, I just think people get manipulated. And I was like, yeah, I, I too absolutely think people get manipulated by politics. I don't think that's just black people though, do you? <laughs> and he's like, no, I, I guess not. So you see, I was just using this instead of this becoming an argument, instead of me saying how, you know, how could you think that that's racist? It was racist. Of course it was racist. But that's beside the point 
in a way. Um, calling it out as racist, the conversation's over, my neighbor probably hates me, whatever. But this way, I actually maybe made a crack in that confirmation bias that that lead both generates and supports the racism. Um, so yeah, that's what I have learned how to do. Well, you, you, you shared an entire book on doing this and doing it well. Speaking of racism is the title of it. It came out about a month ago. Talk about the premise of the, of the book. Um, so I, uh, there's lots of books about talking about race and, and they're great, fully recommend them. I've read many of them. Um, they're gonna tell you about uh, in, in informing you about topics related to race, why you don't touch a black person's hair, why do you use the phrase model minority, etc. Um, my book doesn't do that at all. Um, instead, my book is like, look, the conversation itself is hard and people are avoiding it. So let me use the best behavioral science, psychology, neuroscience, and my own experience having these conversations to tell you how to get through the conversation, how to prepare yourself to have it so that you are willing to when it presents itself, um, how to prepare yourself for when you inevitably make a mistake and say the wrong thing and how to get through it in a way that's actually productive that might move the needle a tiny fraction um so we just walk through the whole thing and it's sort of like it's like my ted talk in a way in that there's steps like do this do this do this um but it's all backed up by the best research and experience i could find so I invited you a few moments ago to share the one thing we should do and having a really wonderful conversation as a listener in this critically important topic around race and where we are as a nation and where we are in our families and churches and synagogues. What, what is the one thing we should begin doing right now, whether we are white or black, whether we lean left or right, what's something we should begin doing today? Um, I, I would say accept the fact that A, you're biased, like the worst thing that could happen to you is not that someone calls you racist spoiler alert you are we know this um people say i don't see color nope we know through research that color is probably one of the very first things or perceived race is one of the very first things people notice about other people that's not something to be ashamed of that's okay like people who are um not white or are uh bipoc people they they want you to notice their difference they want you to notice, they want you to enjoy it and celebrate it just like you enjoy and celebrate your own background and experience and ancestors. So that's number one. Um, so prepare yourself for the fact that at some point you have to come to terms with the fact that you're biased, period. Even if it's a bias like I associate fat people with laziness, that's a really common one. I associate older people with incompetence, super common one. But also we all have biases that are related to sexism and racism, done. Um, B, you're gonna screw up. You're gonna say the wrong thing. It doesn't matter how progressive you are, how liberal you are, you will say the wrong thing. And you will say the wrong thing because nobody on the planet knows everything there is to know about other people's cultures. So you will say the wrong thing. You'll use a phrase like paddy wagon, like I did, and an Irish person corrected me. You will use the word gypsy. You will say the wrong thing and someone might point out to you, whoa, that's not a term that we use. And so you have to learn to be like, okay, they're helping me. Right. They're not criticizing me. 
they're helping me so that I don't do this going forward. So that's what I would say is like, take a breath. It, this is help. This is assistance. So we're moving into neighborhoods where people look and act and vote and worship more similarly to us. We're moving away from states where they're different than us. We're yeah. following friends who are mostly like us. We read blogs and listen to CNN or Fox or MSNBC because they reflect who we are or who we wish we would, were and who we wish we were becoming. And yet you challenge us to really hold these things with our hands open to have these difficult conversations with people who are completely different than we do, than we are at a time when we don't want to. So that you're kind of swimming upstream in so many regards on this one, Celeste. What is something we can do intentionally to, uh, to model this? Most of your conversations about these things are not gonna be with a complete stranger. They're gonna be with a family member or friend, but we're just narrowing our lives to try to avoid any conversation that makes us uncomfortable. And I want people to lean into the discomfort because it makes you better. You know, people don't even go to holiday dinners if there's gonna be a family member there that they think right. is gonna bring up politics. I mean, if you can't even talk to your own family in a productive way over, uh, over um, controversial topics, how are we gonna solve any of the things that are facing us? Right. The reason, you know, when you narrow your life down that way, your your life becomes small. Mm. And I want people to expand their lives and expand their minds. But you can start small. Like you asked me, what should people do? Start small. If you have a, a family member who brings up crappy stuff at the holiday table, then say, how, how long can you last before you yell at them? Five <laughs> minutes? Ten? Give, put in the five or 10 minutes, do it. And then when you reach the end of your rope, you say, you know what, I'm getting upset and I'm getting worked up and thank you so much for speaking with me. Let's change the subject, right? But give it the five minutes. The book, Speaking of Race, it is your most recent work, your most recent baby that you've delivered into the world. When we are finished reading it, what is one thing that you hope is renewed or encouraged or inspired within us? I just want people to feel empowered. I want them to feel like, okay, I've got the tools. All right. I know, I know what this is. I don't want people to have mystery around these conversations. I want people to have so many conversations about race, 60 seconds with their grocery store clerk, um, you know, two minutes with their neighbor down the street. I want them to have so many that it stops being exceptional or scary. It's just like talking about taking your trash cans out. Nobody worries about saying, hey, what? when is trash service coming? I want that to be how normal it is for us to go, wow, did you see that, that incident, blah, 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 that happened and somebody else to go, it's awful. Mm -hmm. And then you part ways and that's it. That's all you have to say. It doesn't have to become a huge thing. Um, I just want us to, yeah, I just want us to stop being afraid. Well, Celeste, this has been a remarkable conversation, fearlessly led by you, my friend. And we wrap up every one of our conversations with seven questions that tether all of our guests together. It always begins with question number one. Celeste, what is the most impactful book you have ever read? Um, the most impactful book I have ever read. That's a great question. I think 
um, I think that probably the one of the most impactful books I have ever read was was um, it was a book called by Anna J. Cooper. I think it was published in the mid 19th century, and it was called A Voice from the South by a Black Woman of the South. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's not incredibly right incredible writing um the, my first thought when you asked me that question was to bring up a charles dickens book because he had a huge influence on me but that one from this woman who was self-educated and just had bond, gone through so much and so honest and authentic and yeah it had a huge impact on me what is one positive characteristic or one positive trait that you possessed as a little girl that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today um, I wished that I, I, I wish that I uh, did <laughs> frivolous stuff more like I was always ready to <laughs> uh, grab whatever board game in someone else's house and just start playing without knowing the rules. I mean, I was ready to like, be like, you know what I feel like doing building a fort and then just going to build it like I wish that I did stuff like that, like. Um, you know, I wish that I had a violin and then just grab whatever's in the trash can and create a little violin that's sort of what I wish I still did. If your home caught fire and all living things are out and you had an opportunity to race back in and grab one thing, one item, what would you come racing back outside with? Oh, this is probably um, incredibly cliche, but I, probably the scrapbook of my, my son's um, earliest years. I have a scrapbook that I was super careful with um, and creative with it's like his first through third years of life and probably that one because they're not backed up on digital right you know so they're not replaceable uh, so probably those if you could sit on a bench with anyone living or dead on a gorgeous day and have a wonderful conversation who would you want to be seated next to Ida B Wells wow why why so quickly did you know that name just because she's awesome she was awesome. Like she was just so passionate and smart. And she, at a time when she had every reason to be afraid of so many things, she was fearless, you know, and she just didn't give a fly. You know, I find as I get older and I'm in my fifties now that your happiness increases in inverse ratio to the amount of you give. Um, so I am not fully happy because I still kind of care a little bit about other people's opinion. She just, yeah, she's got, she had stories. That's who I would talk to. Good answer. What is the best advice she or anyone else ever gave you? Um, the best advice I ever got was from my high school AP history teacher, um, who said, uh, I remember I was so mad about the curriculum that we were studying because it left out all the black history and indigenous history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I hated the fact that we had black history month and it felt to me like we were segregating it. Um, and he said, uh, if you don't like it, Celeste, then go write a new textbook. <laughs> and I said, damn straight I will. <laughs> so yeah. It, he basically, I mean, that's what he was basically saying was like, don't complain about it. Go change it. Yes. Yeah. We all need that advice in our yeah. lives. It's so easy to complain about how broken things are and then cross yep. our arms and put our heads down. Go, go change. fix it. Go, that's exactly right. What would you tell your 20 year old self? I would say stop dieting. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's not going to be good for you. <laughs> um, so you're fine. You're beautiful. Stop stop dieting. Yep. 
Celeste Hutley, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Really? How would you like yours to read? She did the best she could. <laughs> she did the best she could with what she had. <laughs> you've done well with what you've received. And I want to thank you so much for reminding <laughs> us that we can do likewise in our lives. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for all the good questions. My friends, that is Celeste Hadley. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. Well, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation with Celeste that this would be a meaningful conversation with what is taking place around the world, but also with your personal world. I'm always taking notes as my guests are, are sharing their stories with us. And this is one of the quotes that I wrote down from today. Celeste mentioned this, to be a good conversationalist, you have to be as good at talking as you are at listening. Well, said differently, it means this. You've got to be as good at listening, my friends, as you are at talking. I think many of us are expert. Hey, I'm looking in the mirror right now at myself. Expert at speaking. We are called, though, to become experts at listening, seeking first to understand and then to be understood. In a season of divisiveness, my friends, I hope that lights us up to connecting with our neighbors, both across the street and around the world. If you wanna truly seek first to understand, if you're really trying to learn more about listening and the simple human connections that come out of it, I'm gonna encourage you today to look back in time through some of the Live Inspired episodes, way back to episode number 186 with my friend, Tarek Maneeb. Tarek is going to share during episode 186 a remarkable journey he went on along with a group of folks. It was captured in his movie. It's called Free Trip to Egypt. It's an amazing story about an unlikely group of U.S. travelers traveling with Tarek to the Middle East. He captures their experiences. He captures their self-doubt. He captures some of their concerns. And then he captures the way they connected with people that they never would have imagined connecting with in their lives. It's a powerful story. It's a story that not only represents Tarek's journey and something he learned from, but something during these days that you and I and others can learn from as well. So check it out. It's episode number 186. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. If you have already subscribed to it, awesome. You're doing the right thing. If you, if, you, if you have not yet subscribed, here's your chance. Anywhere that you pull down these podcasts, hit the subscribe button. It will ensure that week after week, the inspiration keeps filling your heart, your soul, your words, your ability to listen well with pure inspiration. So subscribe, share it with your friends, and then take the next right step because the next right step leads to the next right step. So my friends, for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Keeley Companies recognizes that their people are indeed their greatest asset. With a focus on career growth and well-being and safety, Keeley Companies are proud to be a career destination. If you or anyone you know is looking to join a culture unlike any other, let me encourage you right now to apply today and experience the Keeley way. If you want to truly make a difference and be part of an organization that recognizes that difference by investing in you, learn more by checking them out online at keeleycompanies.com.